Welcome to Books and Authors with Carrie Barber, the podcast where we talk to authors about their new books. I'm your host, Carrie Barber. We've been on hiatus a bit here at Books and Authors, but I'm thrilled to be back for an episode with Danielle Lazarin, the author of the short story collection Backtalk. The stories are sharp renderings of contemporary women and girls, how they express themselves, how they are held back, and how they move forward to get what they want and need. It's an outstanding collection. I originally talked to Lazarin for Plowshares, and I'm happy to share that conversation here. So let's start there. Why why short stories? Is that your main, you know, is that, have you ever written a novel? Do you plan to write a novel? Or can you just talk about why that's your, why that's your choice? Yeah, this first round. Um, well, maybe I'll, I'll work a little backwards. I'm, I'm currently working on a novel. Um, I have written a novel that uh, is stuck in a drawer and should stay there forever. Um, but all that time I've always written stories. I mean, part of it is that I, I came up through creative writing programs. I did creative writing as an undergrad. I did workshops even like in high school over summers and um and the workshop mode is a short story mode (laughs) so you know there's just that kind of natural matching of the program with what I do and I I have an MFA as well so I continue to do that but even that said I know like a lot of people in my MFA program were not didn't consider themselves naturally short story writers and were always itching to write a novel and I I didn't have that um, feeling every time I have an idea for a novel, I get actually mildly nauseous. Um, I just like had a recent idea that I was like, Oh God, I think this is the novel after the novel. And I felt ill for like half a day. Um, it terrifies me, but you know, I think there's a lot to be said for short stories as a form allowing for experimentation and voice and form, trying out those things that we need in novels. We need to know how to control time, how to write in different points of view. And like the beauty of short stories is you can try all those things out and not invest as much time in them. Um, I mean, <laughs> some of these stories took a really long time to write, but you can you can play around more. And I think that's I think that's why a lot of programs are still based on short stories, because it allows the writer to have that sort of practice. Also, in a short story, you have to do so much with so little. And I felt like reading your collection, I felt like you're really adept at dropping a detail that gives you like the whole character, the whole situation. And it was that was part of what I really loved about your collection. Can you talk a bit about what, how much do you revise? I mean, to me, it said this thing she must have revised this thing a million times. You know, I'm just thinking like, how long would it take me to get to that level of spareness? And I imagine it would take me years. (laughs) So that's, that's what I'm asking you. How, how much do you revise? How long do you work on things? I know you said in, in the collection at the end that it was, I think you said like two decades of work or something. So can you just talk a bit about that too? How much do you work on things? Yeah, I mean, it it depends on um, how close, (laughs) this is going to sound like a circular answer, but it depends on how closely formed it comes out. Um, And I found that, um, you know, like I was saying before about having practice, once I knew that I was really working on a collection and I stopped pretending that I was working on something else and I was focused on it um, and I generated more stories, they became easier to come out 
more fully formed, closer to what they would be in the end, um, which is not to say that they didn't have as much work put into them. I, I kind of think of like, that's like the backlog of all those years that you've spent working in terms of just like pure craft. Some things are just easier. It's easier for me to like pick a voice and know that it's the right voice. Whereas with some of the earlier stories, they probably were gone over so many more times. The other thing about a collection is um, for, you know, some of us, if, if you published in lit mags, you've, you've gone through your own rigorous editing process. And if you're lucky, you have a great editor at the magazine who will help you through those edits. So like by the time it's in a collection, if it's been through that process, it doesn't need as much revision. So much of the, of the revision work for me is at this stage, I feel like mostly like thinking work and figuring out what I think the central question of the story is and what kinds of like signs and points I want to give the reader and making sure that I'm doing that. So it's often not as much like sitting down and typing work as it is just really thinking and trying to understand the story. And that can take a lot of time, but it doesn't look the same if that makes sense. Um, it's not like, I'm not a, um, I'm not a futzer. I, I find that if I, if I go back in too many times, I can't see it anymore. And sometimes I just need space. So I take that time. So some stories did take a long time, but it doesn't mean that I was like actively looking at them. That's so interesting. And then what I'm also really interested in what you said, like I stopped at, at the point that I stopped pretending I wasn't writing a collection. When, when did you know, or not when, but how did you know that you were working on a collection and, and what, just can you talk a bit about the mechanics of that? Like, how did you know which stories to put in and which stories to leave out, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. Um, I was working on a novel that ironically had uh, grown out of a short story I wrote when I was in grad school. And it's interesting, you were earlier talking about, you know, like if I if short stories are my preferred form and I said how some people seem to always want to do novels. And this was a story when I wrote it in grad school that seemed to just have more space in it. And I just kept expanding and expanding. And I worked on that for a while. And as I was working on it, I just became less interested in it. But I kept working at it because I thought like it's a novel and I can't leave it aside. And because I think I was so committed, I give myself a lot of assignments. I'm kind of hard on myself. And so I was like, I'm going to finish this novel and I'm going to revise it and I'm not going to back out of it. But on the side, I kept having story ideas. I think because it was lower pressure for me, I felt the pressure on the novel um, all for myself. I didn't have an agent at this time. And then at a certain point, I just like I kept writing these stories to just kind of get them out of my head because first drafts for me are very much about capturing that initial idea. And then I was I was just struggling in this novel. I wasn't as engaged with it. And then I like kind of was like oh for fun I'll just see how many stories I have and I was like oh I have like nearly a collection and then I just realized that I needed to do the work that I wanted to do and not what I thought would sell in some marketplace I didn't want to sell a book that I I wasn't attached to or I wasn't engaged with and you know once you've sold a book you still have to go through so much time with it and you really have to love it um, you have to love it more than anybody else is going to love it so it was partially I knew I was writing a story collection because I like couldn't finish this other novel. So the novel was very useful <laughs> in that sense and not being what I wanted it to be. Yeah. And then I just like 
put that novel aside. I tried, I mean, honestly, to revise, uh, to like revive it in various ways. I tried to pull out the initial story. I tried to pull out another story from it and it just never worked. So um, that original story isn't in the collection either. The collection is called Back Talk, and so much of it is about women expressing themselves in one way or another. Was that something that you set out to write about, or do you think it just happened because you're a woman and that's your perspective, or can you just talk a bit about that? Yeah, um, I there were a couple of other stories in the collection initially that had men more at their center, and those stories ended up being removed from the collection for various reasons. And one of them somewhat deliberately, I mean, it was a story that wasn't working. And I think it wasn't working because I, it felt more like I was trying to do something that I really felt what the purpose of the story was. I was just trying to like tell a certain kind of story that didn't really feel like it belonged to me. And I think actually realizing that that story didn't belong in the collection was a big eye-opener for me Um, especially I just spent so long writing stories that were called domestic which is a word that I I mean quite frankly I used to take as an insult and now I'm annoyed at my former self for taking that as an insult but there's a belittling of, of women's stories I think that happens and not only in just like the larger culture, but it does happen within workshops. And I will say I had like a wonderful time in in both my Oberlin workshops and my um, Michigan workshops. But, you know, here and there, there you do get this feedback that's like, yeah, this is just like a story about like a woman and her family. And it's like, yeah, uh, <laughs> after a while, that sort of like constant like the story isn't worth enough. It isn't big enough. This isn't examining like the big questions started to really get under my skin. And so I think by the time I stepped back to look at the kinds of stories I was writing and also this impulse I always had to not write certain stories. There are certain stories that I feel like came out really quickly because I thought, oh gosh, like don't write about teen girl friendship anymore. Like you've already written a story like that. You don't want to write it in the first place. Don't write another one. But it's like those stories are really important to me. Those stories were a part of my life. They're a part of so many um, women's lives. And... And I was holding back on them. And it's like, why? This is this is my material. This is what matters. And again, those were stories that came out really quickly and easily because they were familiar to me in some way. I knew what I wanted to do with them. And I also feel like I had been sitting on them and gathering um, energy for them. And so, yeah, I think by the time the collection came together, I knew that that was a question I wanted to write into or something that I wanted to push up against. Now, I was reading your collection at the time when all these daily news stories are coming out about abuse and exploitation of women. And I wonder if you can just comment, did you, did like your title story, particularly Back Talk, which touches on how the girl is basically never heard from or never listened to. Can you just comment on that? Did the did the news make you think of your characters or did those things intersect in any way? I know you were long done writing these things by by the time these things came out. Yeah. Um yeah, it's interesting um to talk about it now. It's one of those like you know, uh glad that women's stories are in the conversation, but also like wish they weren't in this way. Um, it's like not, not the hook I was hoping for. I mean, I I think 
one of the things I thought about a lot with the collection and with that story in particular is the way that women so frequently turn this frustration and rage and sense of responsibility like women feel really responsible um, for a lot of stuff that they're not responsible for and I think that's true of of a lot of my characters a lot of my characters are caretakers in in some way you know there's a story about a babysitter there's a story there's multiple stories about mothers receiving you know friends who take care of one another neighbors and I feel like our culture assumes that women are responsible for other people. Um, and so this larger conversation, so much as what of what has struck me is how there's still this sense of like <laughs> what women like should or shouldn't do and how they're responsible for like these things that have befallen them has really made me nuts. But um, this, this sense of like, you know, the, the title story backtalk, she, instead of speaking her story she just keeps it inside because she knows that what she says is not relevant to the story that's already out there and that she has no power in that and I feel like unfortunately that does resonate with what is going on I think the upside of what is going on now is that the more stories that are getting out there the more women are feeling emboldened to tell their own stories what happens in the in the title story is a is a different sort of of thing. Um, it's not an assault. It's a consensual relationship that does get turned against her. Um, but it's not this, it's not the same, um, kind of incident. But yeah, I thought about how she absorbs that because she just already knows that women's stories aren't believed. Okay. I want to talk now a little bit about, you know, I read that you were submitting to journals with women editors only and that your publishing team is all female. Can you talk a bit about that? What What is your policy for submitting and just a bit of, of your philosophy? These days, I don't do as much submitting because the collection is about to come out. So most of my stories are out where they're going to be. Um, and before I, before I had an agent and kind of as I was getting the collection together, I mean, I, you know, I realized a few things. One is that like, you can control the quality of your work and you can control like how much you put your work out there. And I realized that I was not submitting my work that often and I was kind of holding back on it. And I was like, you know what, I'm just gonna like submit like crazy. Um, and it also happened because I was building the collection. I was writing a lot of stories. I had more stories to submit. And then I was, you know, like, like many people greatly affected by the Vita counts. And it just put such concrete numbers behind stuff that we, I think, all felt that like there was something that just felt like the voices in magazines and in literature were male. And it's, you know, it's funny because most of my grad program was female. Most of my readers have been female. They are still female. And I write stories about women. And I thought like, well, this is, I'm, you know, like, this seems like a simple thing to do. Like, I'm, I'm submitting. And I can just look for places that have a female editor, either as the fiction editor, or I think I did like editor in chief, fiction editor, or I think but I'm not sure. I think might have done managing editor too. Somebody kind of farther up there. And it's like, it's not that hard <laughs> to find. I mean, it was harder than I wanted it to be. And there was a whole bunch of stuff about um, transparency. It was just like so hard to figure out like 
who was actually running a magazine, which is also another issue. Like, why is that not right there? Why is why are those names not available? Why can't we see who is making these like really important choices that are tastemakers? So yeah, I did that and it was great. And I've, you know, I've loved many of the editors who I've worked with. Um, I mean, it also coincided with a decision to read books by women above books by other people. I just feel like, you know, there's, you know, there's many male writers who I've loved, but I've been reading male writers for my whole life without really thinking about why those voices rise up um, and why those books were more at the forefront of my mind. And I, this is still a policy I more or less have, like, if it's a book written by a straight white man, I need like a lot of like, reason to read it. Like I have to really, 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 really want to read it. And that's happened maybe twice in the past couple of years. And there's just always books by women and books by women of color and like non-straight women that are just not getting as much airtime. Um, and I want to do like the tiny little things I can to, um, to put my sometimes literal money <laughs> where my mouth is and, you know, just like read farther into those stories. And yeah, I mean, the the all editing and um, publicist, you know, and agent teams like that. I mean, I did seek out a, a female agent. Um, the other stuff is just like happenstance and like a lot of luck and, and publishing, as I understand it, is also mostly female. But yeah, it's been it's been great to work with people who like really respond to my stories on a level that's like also about identity um, and who understand how to make a difference. Somebody knows how to market my book um, because they share some of the experiences. Speaking of your agent, how did you find an agent? You said yeah, at the beginning, you said you were writing stories without an agent. Can you just talk a bit about how you found yours? Yeah, I went to the MFA program at the University of Michigan. I was there from 2005 to 2007. And at some point, Julie Bear came in to talk to the students and I think it was during my first year um, and and Michigan's pretty careful they don't bring a lot of people in they're very much like do not <laughs> talk to agents unless you like know what book you want to sell and like you know be really ready to go just like there's no rush it'll happen take your time Julie came and I think at that point she had just gone out on her own um, she spoke to like a room full of people. Some people met with her and she talked about like how she really loved short stories. And I just like really liked her. I did not say a single word to her, but I grabbed her card and then kind of like ran off to a corner somewhere and was like, oh, she's great. And I held onto her card for like a very long time. Um, and then, you know, I, I kind of, I did, I waited to figure out what book it was that I wanted to come to an agent with, which I'm really glad that I did. I'm glad that I didn't go out with this other novel or even an incarnation of my stories, maybe like fresh out of grad school, you know, you come out with a thesis and in theory, it's of the length where you could send it and say it's a collection. I'm glad that I decided not to do that because I feel like this book reflects the years that I've had since that time. You know, it was by the time I got an agent, it was nine years later. I um, got Julie in 2016. And then in the meantime, she had become um, an agent for um, a friend of mine, Celeste Ng. And, you know, so it was like, great, because then Celeste would tell me what it was like to work with Julie. And she's like, she's so great. Um, so when I decided to query, I went just to Julie first, because I had like, I mean, I researched other agents, but I had like sat on her card for this long. And just everything she had done in those 
like 10 years at that point. Like she just done so many amazing things. I was like, Julie is my dream agent. I'm just going to like try to make it happen. Um, and I have to say that like that process, even though it took quite a long time from the first time I encountered her was probably the easiest part of my publishing journey because, um, I sent her the collection and then she said yes. And like, I don't know, 36 hours. Um, (laughs) and it was kind of amazing. i I freaked out. I feel really lucky to have had that workout and like everything that I um, heard about Julie and and watched happen, um, you know, from a distance as she worked on her other books with other clients, like has, has come true. She's been a dream. Okay. My last question is we met each other on Twitter. So can you discuss social media? Does it affect your writing? Do you feel like it's affecting your reading or your brain or... Do you have anything positive to say about it, negative to say about it? How do you how do you see it interacting with your work? Um, I like many people refer to Twitter as like a water cooler and I I still feel like that's a really good analogy because for those of us who work solo, um it's just me and if I'm lucky I have my you know my dog is hanging out with me at home. Um it's nice to have that kind of little social check-in and I've been on Twitter for I don't know, probably says on my profile like 2009 or so. And you know like over time you just kind of start interacting with people and I mean I've gotten stories published because of Twitter. I mean I two stories actually the the title story and um landscape number 27 which were both shorter pieces which can be very hard to place i think both of those were me just like being like oh, i have these stories and they're like weird lengths and like nothing nobody's taking stories of this length and then i had people who were were editing or who like were reading for places saying you should submit here they're looking or you know we'd love to have one of your pieces send it along that's pretty amazing Oh, you mean you would you would just tweet like, er, I can't find a home for this thing. And somebody would write back like, oh, you should try such and such. Yeah. Um, but like people who were like, you know, one of them was um, Peter Kispert, who was then editing Indiana Review, said, you know, like, I've long been a fan of your work. Like, would you um, do you want to try sending it to us? And we'll we'll see, which was just great because <laughs> uh, I was actually just talking about this with friends this morning. It's like one of the things you know, like I love Twitter because it is like can be very amusing and like a community but also like sometimes you're really like not looking for suggestions and people just feel the need you know you like write something and they just like give you four solutions you're like I just was like complaining on the internet like I treat Twitter because I have a pretty small following I treat Twitter as if like nobody is listening to me so um (laughs) for better or worse uh like it's just like throwing something out into the ether and so, but yeah, some, sometimes that can work in your favor when you're just like kind of complaining and then someone's like, I can help you solve this problem. Um, that's like actually a problem and not like, you know, my feet are cold or whatever. And you get like 15 comments about socks. The other thing about Twitter is I just, I've discovered so many books and writers and essays. I feel like I would not know how to find any of those essays if I was not on Twitter. And you get a real sense of like what people are talking about, what the cultural conversation is in in this very small universe. But still, like that's like, that for me has been a positive thing to be engaged with. Um, I'm a pretty disciplined worker. So um, I don't, you know, every once in a while I get sucked into it, but it doesn't really like cut into my work time the way um, I think it 
can or per- perhaps has in the in the past and then you know like yeah it it also connects me to all these voices that you know it's like in the this is like a super positive <laughs> um spin on twitter but like all these voices that i just would never have encountered and just like thinkers and yeah i just I, I think it gives me if if you curate it well, if you figure out who you want to follow and who you actually want to listen to, and that's like based on like what your interests are, um, I think it can be really helpful to giving you a community and a sense of like what that community cares about. And that's the show for this time. Thank you to Danielle Lazarin, and thanks to you for listening to Books and Authors. I'm your host, Carrie Barber. <laughs>